We want to now turn to God's word. We've sung his word. We've prayed his word. We've read his word. Now it's time to have the word preached. And I have a special message given our new members and baptisms today and the upcoming American holiday of Thanksgiving. I want to bring to you a message on giving thanks, but on giving thanks to God for the local church. We should give thanks to God for many things, for everything that he's given us, which is everything good. We should give thanks for those things, our food that we have, whether we eat it today or on Thursday, our family, our home, our work that provides income for us to live on. But we should give thanks to God for our local church because it is a special place. It is, in a sense, like heaven on earth until we get to heaven someday. That does not mean that the local church is perfect. Spurgeon said, you'll never find a perfect church. And if you do, don't join it because it won't be perfect anymore. We will not find a perfect church. And yet, as we sing together, as we worship together, as we honor the Lord together, as we hear of people getting saved and rejoice at that, it is like heaven where we will do that for eternity. So I want to turn your attention today to 1 Thessalonians chapter 1. And I want to show you where Paul gives thanks for the Thessalonian church. Paul himself often starts his letters just by giving thanks to God for the local church that he's writing to. And I want to show you here what he is saying and how we can apply that to our own life as we give thanks this week. To give you the context here, Thessalonians, he writes 1 Thessalonians and later 2 Thessalonians to a new church, maybe only six months to a year old. And Paul only spent a few weeks there, and yet he has so much good to say about them. They have not wandered off. They have not gone off into the Galatian heresy. They have not struggled with sin coming into the church like in 1 Corinthians. They have heard some false teaching about the end times that has upset them. And he comes to that later in the letter. But our attention here today is on the first chapter here where he gives thanks to God for the church. So let me read the chapter to you. And then we'll look at 2 through 10, giving thanks to God for your church. Paul and Silvanus and Timothy, to the church of the Thessalonians in God the Father and the Lord Jesus Christ, grace to you and peace. We give thanks to God always for all of you, making mention of you in our prayers, remembering without ceasing your work of faith and labor of love and steadfastness of hope in our Lord Jesus Christ before our God and Father, knowing, brothers, beloved by God, your election. For our gospel did not come to you in word only, but also in power and in the Holy Spirit with full assurance just as you know what kind of men we proved to be among you for your sake. You also became imitators of us and of the Lord, having received the word in much affliction with the joy of the Holy Spirit, so that you became a model to all the believers in Macedonia and then Achaia. For the word of the Lord has sounded forth from you, not only in Macedonia and Achaia, but also in every place your faith toward God has gone forth so that we have no need to say anything. For they themselves report about us what kind of an entrance we had with you, and how you turned to God from idols to serve a living and true God, and to wait for his Son from heaven, 
whom he raised from the dead, Jesus, who rescues us from the wrath to come. Paul gave thanks for the Thessalonian church. He says here that he's continuing to pray for them. He says he's giving thanks to God always. Or maybe your translation says continually. This is Paul's prayer to the Lord God. He wrote it here in the letter so they would know what Paul is praying to God for them and what this prayer is about. And he says he makes mention of them in our prayers. Him and his evangelistic team, his church planting team that is traveling around planting churches and checking on the churches he planted, they are making mention often of this church in their prayers. Paul and Silas and Timothy were praying daily over this church and giving thanks to God. And he says, all of you, not just the pastor, not just the elders, not the elders and deacons, but everyone in the church is being prayed for in this way. So today, what I want you to see here is nine reasons. Yes, nine points in the sermon today. Nine reasons to thank God for your church. And Paul's going to show us what these are. Nine reasons to thank God for your church. And there's three groups of three. They, they're kind of organized here. And the way that the original language is structured in three groups of three, especially the first group is connected. And I'll show you that as we go through. Number one, they have an exercised faith. They have an exercised faith. You see this in verse three, remembering without ceasing your work of faith. The first thing he mentions is, is the work of faith. This is the work that comes from faith. This is because they have saving faith in Christ. Now they are working that out, as Paul says to the Philippians. Work out your salvation in fear and trembling. He doesn't say work for your salvation. This is not somehow earning your salvation. But now that you have it, now that you have saving faith, and you continue every day to wake up and have faith, work that out. Do good works. Serve the Lord. Serve one another. Not initial saving faith, but the Christian life characterized by good works. This is what James talks about in his letter to the churches where he says that faith without works is dead. You may claim to believe in Jesus, but are you living a holy life, a Christ-like life, where you're doing good works to others? If you're saved, then you will serve the Lord. Then you will seek to do good works to the Lord and others. Every true believer will have works that follow their faith. The Thessalonians had a, a vigorous, they had an active faith in Christ that, that showed itself through their actions and their service towards one another. Your faith is not just a decision. You heard that, or a feeling. You heard that in a, a testimony today. This, this sense of, okay, I have a good feeling, maybe I'm saved. No, faith is not just a feeling. Yes, it comes with feelings. It comes with emotions. You even saw some tears today. Yes, faith has emotions, but it's not simply a warm, fuzzy feeling that you get when you heard something said in church. Faith shows itself by working itself out in the lives of the person that is saved and the church that they belong to. And Paul says that I am continually remembering without ceasing your work of faith. All of these Christians were serving together. They were unified. They were loving one another. They were doing the one another's we just read about on the screen with our church covenant. Again, these works are not the cause of salvation, but they are the fruit of salvation. As Martin Luther said, we are saved by faith alone, but the faith that saves is never alone. 
it will produce fruit. So he says he's giving thanks for the work being done by your church because of their faith. That's what we should do. We should pray and give thanks to God this week for the work being done in this church. Not just by yourself, not just by the leaders, but by every member. Did you know there was an evangelism team that went out? Half of the team was brand new for the first time going door to door through this neighborhood. They went to a hundred homes and passed out flyers and passed out a handout about the gospel and invited people to church. That's something that as the elders were up here having an important meeting and we were discussing different things after our men's leadership, there was another group out there doing evangelism. And we see this all throughout the church all week long. In fact, as Frank and I were saying yesterday, almost every day somebody is here doing something or somebody is in homes meeting with home groups or people are serving one another in a way that we don't even know about. Our church is active, exercising their faith every day of the week. Secondly, he gives thanks that they are energized by love. Energized by love. He says he's remembering without ceasing their work of faith and labor of love. This remembering without ceasing categorizes these first three here. This is labor of love that he thinks about now. This is a labor which is prompted by love. They have a love for the Lord and they have a love for one another. And they're laboring because of this. Not just work, which can be pleasant at times, but the Greek word here for labor includes exertion, fatigue, exhaustion. This is the kind of work that you're willing to do for one another, even when you're tired, even when you don't have time, even when your schedule is busy and a brother or sister in Christ needs your help. They need your counsel. They need your encouragement. They need your text or phone call or email. They need your kindness to listen to them on a Sunday morning after church as they're telling you about their life. You see, these Christians here didn't just show up late to church. They didn't leave early. They didn't unplug from the body the rest of the week. They didn't say in Thessalonica that, hey, I've come to church for an hour and a half. We'll see you guys next Sunday. They were involved. They were laboring. They were loving one another. And he gives thanks for that. This church that Paul writes to, they excel at showing each other love. And then in the second letter he'll write to them, he says, the love of each one of you towards one another grows even greater. Even greater, ever greater. Their love is increasing for one another. Not a soft, warm, fuzzy kind of Disney love, but a real Christian love. A love characterized by God and his attribute of love. This is not just a feeling, but it's an action and a feeling. Feelings are fine as long as they're coming through the mind and you are then acting out on what you're supposed to do. And that will produce righteous emotions, good emotions. Love is not just a feeling. It's an action. In fact, often it's a verb in the Bible, isn't it? Husbands, love your wives. I don't just tell my wife, I'll have a good feeling towards you today. No, she expects when I say that, I'm going to do actions that are loving towards her. Husbands, love your wives like Christ loved the church. Did Christ show up and say, you know, I have a warm feeling towards you guys today? We'll see you later. No, he sacrificed himself on the cross. He did actions of love as well. Paul is saying that this church here has been laboring in love for one another those serving with their gifts of service, those who put in all the effort in the church that you don't even see. 
the folks who are here taking care of the building or setting up for our fellowship meal. Or suddenly when we get up after church and everything just goes like this and boom, there's everybody eating on tables and fellowshipping together. Service like that. The elders aren't there directing it. It just gets done. I mean, I'm amazed at things that just get done around here compared to when we were in the very early days of church planting. Things just happen because of the labor of love. Thirdly here, endured in hope. This is still in verse 3. Remembering without ceasing your work of faith and labor of love and steadfastness of hope in our Lord Jesus Christ. That's the third activity here that Paul is constantly giving thanks to God for. A type of endurance here that lasts. Not one where you sit back and you, and you bear the pain that's coming. That's not what he's talking about with endurance. But it's more like a soldier who's enduring through the battle. Who's standing firm. That even though church life and Christian life is up and down at times, they're enduring in hope. The first time they hear a gossip, the first time they hear a rumor, they're not bailing and canceling their membership. No, they're here. They're correcting, they're rebuking, they're admonishing, they're growing with the body of Christ. Now, all of these three that I've mentioned were done before our God and Father. All of these three, exercise faith, energized by love, endured in hope, is happening before the eyes, before the face of our God and Father. He sees everything. He sees all the work being done in the church. Even those times where you're serving and you're wondering, does anybody even notice? God notices. God sees. We don't do it for man's pleasure. We do it to serve the Lord. He sees everything. He, and he blesses the work done in his name. And he's the one who empowers the work to be done in the first place. And he gives us the fruit of it. So he should be glorified for the work that we do. He should be thanked for that. These first three, faith, Love and hope endures all and endures church life and endures married life and endures friendship. And we continue to love and serve one another. Like the Thessalonians, you're all members of this church. You work hard. You zealously serve. I'm thankful for that. I know on behalf of the elders, we're thankful for that. I thank God for you. The church is made up of believers who love one another. Where would we be if you weren't here together? serving, loving, worshiping together. I thank God that you don't tolerate divisiveness, that you don't tolerate slander, that you don't tolerate false teaching, that you're on it before the elders have to be on it. You're dealing with it in your personal relationships, in your small groups, your labor of love, working together in continuous faith, hope, and love. This is biblical Christianity on display. One of the common things I hear when people come to this church is, your church is so loving. Somebody just recently told us as they were joining the church, this is the first healthy church they've been in. I wish they, there was a hundred of those in San Antonio. That's not to say there's not other true churches around. It's just to say it's so hard these days to find a church that is preaching the word, believing the word, and living out the word. It is a challenge. It is hard for us to do it as well, but it's what we're called to do. People often come at first because they hear of our doctrine. They, they hear of the preaching. But people often stay because of you. Because of your care. Because of your love. Because you strike up a conversation. Because you greet them. And you talk to them after the service. And you help them. And you answer their questions. I give thanks for that. We all should give thanks for that. God has done it. Number four. Number four out of nine. He gives thanks because they're elected by God. 
knowing brothers, beloved by God, your election. This is a major reason that he gives thanks. Notice that Paul does not even explain what election is here. He doesn't go into detail like he does in Romans about election. There in Romans, he spends over a chapter on election. Here, he just says the word and they know what he means. Which means he taught them when he was there for three or four weeks teaching. Which means they were brand new believers and they were learning about a doctrine like election. Which means we don't have to wait until we're 10 years into the faith or five years or even a year to learn about these truths in scripture. Some people say election is too lofty. It's too high. You have to wait a while to learn about it. Now here's Paul saying that he gives thanks to God for their election. And they didn't do anything. Election is not something you do. It's something that God does. And he gives thanks to God for that. Election means that God, according to his grace, had chosen them to be saved. Not on account of any works, but because of his purpose. Because of his mercy. Because of his grace. His sovereign good pleasure. Everyone who's in Christ today, right here in this room, if you're in Christ, you have been elected by God. Paul gives thanks for that. I give thanks for that. We all should give thanks to God for that. This is the doctrine of God's election that Jesus taught of. He says, you did not choose me, but I chose you and appointed you so that you would go and bear fruit and that your fruit would remain so that whatever you ask of the Father in my name, he may give to you. You see how Jesus ties in the sovereign grace and election of God with being saved and then producing fruit. It works just like that. God chooses whom he will choose. He gives mercy to whom he will give mercy. And then he in time calls them. They are saved and they produce good fruit because we're connected to the vine, Jesus Christ. God planned before the foundation of the world that every believer here today would be part of Christ's kingdom, that he would have many people among this massive family. Yes, this is one local family, but there are families all around the world that are connected as the one family, the one family of God. Now, some of you, if you think about it, you didn't really have a family. Yeah, you grew up in a natural family, but before you were saved, you did not have a church family. Maybe you went to church, maybe you were self-deceived thinking you were a Christian, but the Bible, and we know this to be true as well, says that some of us were former drug addicts, alcoholics, spouse abusers, sexually immoral sinners, thieves, People who sinned over and over, even in our hearts against God. Others were wrapped in false religion or putting your faith in moralism, trying to earn your way to God through good works. We were scoundrels. We were apart from God. We were without Christ. And when he saves you, when he saves you through his death and resurrection, he puts you in a family. You're in a family now. This is a family that loves you. These members who join today, they just join the family. And the family is going to watch after them. They're going to watch out for them. They're going to take care of them. If somebody wanders away from the family, if we don't see them for a while, if they haven't been to a regular family gathering, we're going to check up on them. We're going to see how's it going with their life. Are they sick? Are they hurt? Are they in sin? Do they need encouragement? That's what the family of God's elect does. We give thanks for that as Paul does here. As you stand here today worshiping our Savior, let's make sure that we give thanks to God for such a miracle as what he's done in our lives and our hearts. Number five, he gives thanks for the empowered preaching, empowered in preaching. Verse five, for our gospel, 
did not come to you in word only, but also in power and in the Holy Spirit and with full assurance, just as you know what kind of men we prove to be among you for your sake. He's talking here about the preaching and the power that's behind the preaching and the power that goes with the preaching and it goes before the preaching. He gives thanks for how the gospel was preached among them. Paul's the one doing the gospel preaching and he's giving thanks for how it went out and how the Spirit worked in their hearts. The gospel here, the good news, the euangelion, the evangel, that even though we're sinners, even though we fall short of the glory of God, that Christ died on the cross for us, that he took our sins and he removed them from our account the moment we have faith and we receive his righteousness. And that was all confirmed when he was raised again on the third day. Now Christ calls out, come unto him and be saved. Be, be trusting in him alone for salvation. This is the word that Paul would have preached in Thessalonica. This is the word that they heard preached. The word, the gospel at the front of the preaching, at the back of the preaching, during the preaching. And after he's done preaching, the spirit is bringing that home to the heart. And these aren't just words being preached out loud, but it was done, he says, in power. This is power given by God that these missionaries had when they preached the gospel. And notice also it says, in the Holy Spirit, evidenced by the fact that God granted them a new heart. When a man preaches the Bible, it's not just words that go out from him. Hopefully he's sticking to the Bible and it's the word of God that's going out. And it comes into the year and it goes into the inner man and then the Spirit comes and he works on a person's heart. If that person is an unbeliever and God has called them, the Spirit changes their heart and they believe. If that person is already a believer, then the Spirit is there working on the heart to believe what they're hearing and to put it into practice. This preaching also came with full conviction. Full conviction. They didn't just believe part of the gospel. They didn't believe the part about faith and then reject the part about repentance. They didn't just pick and choose what they liked about the message. No, they received it all and they believed it with a full conviction. It means a state of complete certainty, full assurance. Not the assurance of that the Thessalonians were saved necessarily, but the missionaries themselves preached the gospel with full conviction. Full conviction in their hearts as they went about preaching the word and sharing the word with one another. Just as he says, you know what kind of men we prove to be among you for your sake. He said, look, you could watch us. You could see us live our lives. You could come into our tent because they were traveling and they had tents and otherwise it would have been coming to our home. And you could see our lives and you could see our families if they were traveling with their wife. And you could see our children if they were to take their children along, these missionaries. You could come and see what kind of men we were. You could spend time with us. Paul is saying, it's important that when the gospel's brought to people, that those people see your Christianity in action. If you're living a life of sin, calling yourself a Christian, and you try to share the gospel, this person knows you for very long. They're going to say, what kind of Christianity is that? Not that you stumble sometimes and show them how to repent and show them how to turn back to God. But when you run off into sin continually, and then you try to tell them, this is what Christianity is about. Paul says, no, you, you saw how we lived, Thessalonians. And we give thanks that the word went out, it had power, it changed your heart, and you were able to see how we lived it out among you. 
Let's give thanks to God for a church that preaches the word with the power of God and pray and ask that the Lord would bless the preaching here even more. I know all the elders would agree. Pray for us as we minister in the different places we do, whether it's in the pulpit or the lectern or in the counseling room. Pray for us. Pray that the word that we teach would have an effect on the hearts of the hearers. Number six, they exhibited discipleship. He gives thanks in verse six here because they showed discipleship. They exhibited discipleship. You also became imitators of us and of the Lord. Paul rejoiced. He, he gave thanks here. He saw that they saw him and the others with him and they imitated their lives, which is imitating the Lord Jesus Christ. That's what a disciple is. A disciple follows their master. They follow the example set before them. The disciples followed Jesus around. They saw how he lived. They saw how he taught. They heard the doctrine that he taught and they believed it. He doesn't give as evidence their belief first here in verse 6 or even an event that occurred. He doesn't say, look back to your baptism necessarily or your profession of faith, all of which are good. Instead, he shows the obvious fruit that everyone could see. You lived it out. You lived like us, he's saying. You, you talked and, and worked and lived and treated others like we did and like the Lord did when he walked among us. Sometimes we, we shy away from being discipled. We think, well, that would be wrong if we maybe ask somebody to guide us, to lead us, to, to show us how to live the Christian life. But we all need discipleship. I need discipleship. The elders need discipleship. The deacons need discipleship. The ministry leaders in the church need discipleship. We all need to be led and shown how to grow in the faith. Whether that's one-on-one or in a small group or in a large group, I'm not saying it has to be a certain way, and neither is Paul. He is just saying that they saw him and these other missionaries, and they followed their example. This is a good thing. Hebrews 13, 7, Remember those who led you, who spoke the word of God to you, and considering the result of their conduct, imitate their faith. Don't imitate people's sins, and everybody is going to sin at some point. No, imitate their faith. Imitate how they live out their faith. This is nothing less than Christian discipleship. Bringing people along in the faith. You need to find somebody that, that you can imitate in the faith and grow as you follow them. And you need to look back and find somebody that you can help grow in the faith as well. Maybe that's done through counseling, book studies, small groups, and so on. Find a way to be a disciple and to make disciples. I'm so thankful that we have fellow elders here who love to disciple other men. I'm so thankful that yesterday as we sat in this building for men's leadership, that each of the elders had their small group and we were going through theology and we were going through how to put, to, put the sin to death in our lives. We were going through church history. We were doing these things for over an hour yesterday in these small groups. That's a type of discipleship. And not just the elders, but many of you excel at this. Many of you are doing book studies, Bible studies, meeting together regularly for prayer. And none of the elders made that happen. You did. You took it upon yourself as church members to do that. And we give thanks to God for that. I think of the, the Puritans in their day. The Puritans were not liked by the Church of England in the 1600s. And so 
the king would start to enact laws against the Puritans to restrict their teaching. And first they were preaching in the church, and then suddenly they couldn't preach in the service, but you had to come back in the afternoon to listen to their lectures. So what they do in their lectures, they just changed the name of it. The, the title was, come and listen to the lecture, but it was still a sermon. So the king and the bishops didn't like that. And they said, well, then you can't teach in the church anymore. You have to be so many miles away from the church now. And so what they do, they gathered a little small group in the fields. And then the king and the bishops said, well, you can't do that. You have to be so many more miles from the church. And then you can have a group maybe in the home way out in the country. So then they did that in the country and in force. And they gathered a little group and they went through the word of God. And finally, the king said, I've had enough of that. I'm going to make sure you never teach the Bible. And he started arresting and persecuting those who did. But they were dedicated to making disciples, to bringing Christians along in the faith, to teaching the word of God. And we need to give thanks for that happening in our local church. Number seven, Paul is giving thanks because they encourage the church. Encouraged the church. Verse 7. So that you become a model to all the believers in Macedonia and in Achaia. The region that they lived in. He's saying that the area that you live in and the area next to it. The state we might say in, in Texas and in, in Louisiana and in Arkansas and in New Mexico. You became a model. To all the believers. Because this church had received the word of God. These people were saved immediately when they heard the word of God. And they became Christians and not just baby Christians. They went from baby to adult Christians really fast. Because they loved the word. And they had received the word in much tribulation but with joy. And Paul calls them an example. A pattern of other churches to follow. He would have said, you know that church in Thessalonica? That's a good example. You know, you Corinthians, you Galatians need to be like that church. They're the ones that have set a good standard for what a church is. Nowhere else does he call another church an example for all believers or an example for any believers. The Thessalonians, the Thessalonican church loves the Lord and they are serving the Lord. They are a good example to other believers. What's easier? The church being a good example to unbelievers or a good example to other biblically sound churches? I think it's the latter. To, to the unbelieving world, any decent church looks like a good example compared to what's happening in the world. But to now be compared to other sound churches and saying this is the model, that's quite an accomplishment that the Lord has worked out in this church. Now Macedonia and Achaia, they're, they're north and south parts of Greece that we call Greece today. And the Romans had divided that into two provinces. And Paul is saying, look, not even in your province, but all the provinces in that area. You are the example. We should be thankful for this church because it is now being spoken of in other parts of San Antonio and other parts of South Texas and Central Texas, other parts of Texas. We are hopefully striving to be a model. Not that we have arrived yet. Not that we are the model for all churches around the world. But we are seeking to follow the Lord and be a good example, a good model. So that other pastors can come here and they can visit with us. And they can see what the Lord is doing through this ministry. We should be thankful for that. This encouragement in this area through all of you. Many other believers 
and churches have told me that they've met some of you out and about. And they've only had good things to say. Number eight, he is thankful because they have evangelized the world. Evangelize the world. For the word of the Lord has sounded forth from you. It's echoed out. The word has gone out from this little church and this rather minor city in the Roman Empire. The word has gone out. It gives the image here of a, of a trumpet or a sounding board echoing something out. This trumpet did not necessarily create the sound here, but instead it, it receives it like a sounding board and then amplifies it out. So maybe like a speaker here in the auditorium amplifying the sound out to everyone. Like when you throw a rock in the pond and you have these ripple effects that go out. There's a ripple effect because of what's happened here in this new church, just a few months old. And everyone's talking about what happened in Thessalonica. The gospel, the good news, the word of the Lord and its effect on their church has sounded forth to areas outside of Greece even. He says, not only in Macedonia and Achaia, not only in the parts of Greece, but also in every place, your faith toward God has gone forth. He says, so that we have no need to say anything. We're traveling to the Roman Empire and we show up at the local church and we're talking to believers, he says, and they already have heard about what happened with your church. He's saying, we don't have to tell them the story. They already know the story. The word has spread faster than the travels of Paul and Silas and Timothy. Others had begun to hear how their lives had been completely changed as a result of this good news. As members of the church and Thessalonica went out about their business and went to other cities, the word got spread throughout the empire. Verse 9, For they themselves report about us what kind of reception we had with you. No need to mention the good things happening there. They're telling us about it. They're telling us, they're, they're reporting about what we did in the church when we got there and preached the word. It's like going to, to somebody's house and they're telling you a story about what they heard about you and some good thing that you did. And you're just like amazed. How would they even know that? And yet they do. Could the same be said about us? Could the same be said about you and me? That they themselves report about us what kind of reception that the gospel had here? That our lives so evidence a change that people want to hear about the good news? Are you living such a life that people come and ask you that question? Tell me, what, what is it that makes you have hope, that makes you have endurance? How do you get through the struggles in your life? How do you not worry? How, how do you not take all these things into your body to mess with your mind so you can feel good about life? How do you do that? Hopefully, as you live out your Christian life, you'll get those opportunities. Continuing on in verse 9, for they themselves report about us what kind of an entrance we had with you. So he's hearing as he travels the story about his own life when he first came there. Paul came there to preach the gospel and they're saying, we heard about this, Paul. The report that as you went into that place, you preached the gospel. They believed and how you turned to God. Here's their conversion testimony, how you turn to God from idols to serve a living and true God. That's conversion. They repented. They turned away from idols. That, that was their great sin. There are many sins that they would have had just like us. But the obvious sin that everybody could see is when you went up to that pagan temple and you sacrificed 
or some other immorality was committed there with temple prostitutes and so on. Everyone would have seen you walking down the street to the temple. You're worshiping the God of that city. And now Paul says you turned away from that. That's an example of repentance. That is repentance, to turn away from sin and turn to something else, to turn to Christ, to turn to serve a living and true God. Literally, to serve as a slave to a living and true God. We were slaves of sin and God turned us around and we repented of our sin and we turned to Christ and now we're a slave of Christ. I want to be a slave of Christ. There's only two types of slaves in the world. Slaves to sin, slaves of Christ. Which one do you want to be? The verb here means to be a slave, to serve the living God, not a false God, not the false idols. John Calvin said, only the man who's learned to put himself wholly in subjection to God is truly converted to him. He doesn't say here that they turned halfway. They didn't turn halfway. They've got one hand still in the idol and one hand on God. One hand still in the world and one hand trying to turn towards God. No, they fully made that change. Now we know God allowed that. God permitted that. God caused that to happen in their hearts. And yet they did it as well. Man's responsibility. There's God's sovereignty and there's man's responsibility. You are called to turn from sin and turn to Christ. It is what all of us are called to do as the word of God goes out. Now they serve a living and true God. We need to be thankful that Grace Bible Church here, that the word of truth has gone out. It is evangelizing, it is spreading, it is being proclaimed in this area. Your love, your, your faith towards God has been spoken of as a whole church and sometimes in individual cases. Whether it's Bernie, Northwest San Antonio, which is generally where most of our members live, or in surrounding areas from Kerrville to Comfort to, to Pipe Creek to Spring Branch, Bolverde, Fair Oaks, to Lotus, even roundabout to Garden Ridge and South San Antonio. The word of the Lord is going out. And you're interacting with people and you're meeting people and you're telling them about your church. Praise God. Give thanks to him. Number nine. Lastly, number nine. He gives thanks for the exalted Savior. And not just for the exalted Savior, but that they exalt the Savior too. That they exalted this Savior. That's in verse 10. Others report to us how, and then it goes on, how you wait for his Son from heaven, whom he raised from the dead. Jesus, who rescues us from the wrath to come. Jesus is exalted. He's at the right hand of God. He's in heaven. But they are exalting him by praising him, by worshiping him, and by waiting for him to return. They're not just sitting around saying, you know, he'll be back someday. I can do what I want. No, they're serving the Lord. They're serving the Lord and everyone knows about it. Others knew that these Christians here in this city were waiting for God's son to return. And they were living like it. They weren't living like the world saying, I've got my ticket punched. I'm going to heaven someday. Now I can do what I want. No, they're waiting in the sense that they are living out the commands of Christ. They are striving for greater holiness. They weren't just saying, oh, at the end time, he'll return. No, they're waiting expectantly. They're hoping for it in the near future. They want Christ to return. They're not saying, God, I hope you wait a while before you send your son back. 
Because I've got all these things to do in my life. I've got all these accomplishments to make. I've got all this money to make. No, they're saying, Lord Jesus, come soon. Lord Jesus, come back. Set things right in this wicked world. They served a living and true God. And they're separated from these pagans that surround them in that city and in that empire. And they're waiting for the second coming that has been taught them through the apostle. The church should be talking about and waiting for Christ's return. We should be talking about it. Some churches are scared to talk about Christ's return. They think, well, that's eschatology. We don't want to talk about eschatology. No, we need to exalt the Savior. We need to wait for his return. And we need to be teaching on it, talking about it, reading about it, studying about it. They were an example. And we should give thanks to God. We are a church that is waiting on the Lord. We are a church that's gathered here today. And we're hearing the word of God. And we're loving the Lord with all our hearts, mind, soul, and strength. And we're waiting on him to return. It could be today. It could be tomorrow. It could be next week. And if you're a believer, you long for that. If you haven't put your faith in Christ, then you don't long for that. That's fearful. It should be fearful. Christ is coming back to judge the world. There's going to be this great tribulation upon the earth. And if you're not one of his, you will suffer that wrath. And then eternal wrath after the judgment. Turn to this exalted Savior. Do like they did here in Thessalonica. They turned away from their idols. Today, it's idols of the heart. Today, it's idols of the heart that people have. You may not bow down to a statue, but you bow down to a device or a computer to fulfill your lusts. Or you bow down to another person who is everything to you and you worship them in a spiritual sense. Or you bow down to money or work or accomplishments or titles. Or you bow down to your own pride. Turn from idols. Turn to Christ. You be this example. You can be this example as you profess Christ and what he's done for you in faith. What a work God has done here in this church for the last eight years. It's about eight years ago that we started in our home over in Fair Oaks. Uh, at the time we lived there, we tried to pack as many people into the kitchen there and the, the, the living room was kind of together. And we just taught the word. We sang hymns. And we told people we're planting a church, Lord willing. And eventually some of you showed up to that first event. And here we are all these years later. Still a young church in respect to other churches in the area, but look at what the Lord has done. Many people are saved and were saved just coming here and hearing the gospel. Others were saved somewhere else and realized they needed to grow and ended up here. Others have been believers for some time and moved to the area and were looking for a church and here they are. It doesn't matter how you got here. God has put you here providentially. It's not an accident. God doesn't work like that. Suddenly, you surprised him when you walked in the door. He providentially put you in this church for a purpose. And we can give thanks to God for our church, for everything that's going on, for every church member, for every believer, and what we're all doing to love the Lord and serve one another. So we all have prayed for this and continue to pray for this church and give thanks to God this week. As you're thinking on Thursday, what should I give thanks for? Give thanks for all that God has given you. Give thanks for your salvation and your Savior, most of all. But give thanks for your local church. Let's do that now. Lord, we do pray this morning that you would remind us all week, every day, all year, that we should give thanks to you. You're our God. 
we receive nothing good from the world, but we receive everything good from you, Lord. As your people, as your church, we thank you for what you've done here. We thank you that we have these baptisms today, these four people who've professed faith publicly and are ready to follow your commands of baptism. We give thanks for these 15 new members who are joining this body. We give thanks for this building that we have. We give thanks for all the discipleship happening. We give thanks for the little babies in the nursery that there just keeps being more and more babies happening, coming forth in this church, Lord, and ending up in the nursery. We give thanks for all of that. The food we're about to eat, the marriages that have happened here, the growth in marriages that continue to occur here. We give thanks, Lord, for the elderly who are here, who are finishing well, who are fighting the good fight of faith. We give thanks for the children who come to classes and they have faithful teachers in those classes. And we give thanks for those teachers and that these children are hearing the Bible. We give thanks for all the evangelism that is happening in this area because your word tells us to take it out to the people. We give thanks, Lord, for everything from the carpet cleaning all the way up to what happens in this service. You're our God. You're a good God. And we thank you for all that you've done. In the name of Jesus, amen.